Let's take a Bible. Let's open it together to 2 Samuel chapter 20, if you would, please. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, how about borrowing one of ours? You'll find it on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 231, page 231 in our copy of the Bible, 2 Samuel 20 in your copy. Can you guys hear out in the lobby okay? You all right? Wave your hands if you're all right out there. God bless you guys. We love you. Honest, we do. Wish you were in here with us. God bless you. All right. Hey, the year was 1934, and it was the National Football League Championship game being played between the unbeaten Chicago Bears, uh, led by legendary scoring machine Bronco Nagurski, and the New York Giants. The game was being played at the Polo Grounds in New York, and the weather had been frigid for days. As a matter of fact, at game time, it was nine degrees on the field. The field was frozen solid so that the cleats that the players were wearing were absolutely useless. It was like running on stilts. Well, in the first half, the explosive Bears could only manage 13 points on a field like this running on cleats. And it was 13-3 to at halftime, favor of the Bears, when Giants coach uh, Steve Owen came up with an idea. Owen remembered that in a, in a college game played on a similar field, one of the college teams had all switched to sneakers so that they could get better traction on the field. And so at halftime, he sent his team trainer on the subway into Manhattan to go buy basketball shoes for everybody on the team. The guy got back with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. Steve Owen, the coach, called timeout. The entire Giants team sat down and changed from cleats into sneakers. This is true. On the sideline, came back on the field and proceeded to score four touchdowns in 10 minutes and win the game 30-13 to 13 for their first ever NFL championship. When I read this story, I said, hey, Coach Owen, here is a great example of somebody who sized up a situation and brought some real wisdom to it, right? Now, there's an example of this in the, the passage in front of us this morning with a lady who does the very same thing. She sizes up the circumstance around her and with wisdom saves her own life and the life of lots of other innocent people we want to talk about that, and then we want to use her example as a springboard to talk about how we in the 20th century, as followers of Jesus Christ, can live lives where we bring wisdom to bear on our lives, on the situations we find ourselves in, where we get that kind of wisdom and what it looks like. So let's uh, look together. That's our plan for the morning. Uh, remember here, a little bit of background. Remember, King David has been run out of town by his son Absalom, but his armies defeated Absalom's armies, and now he's coming back to retake his throne. And when he does, there's a revolt that breaks out in Israel led by a fellow named Sheba. And, and David has to send his army out to track this guy down and to deal with the revolt, and that's where we pick up the story. So let's pick up verse 14, chapter 20. It says, And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Makkah. This is a city all the way in the northern part of Israel, way up near the Lebanese border of today. Now, this was not Sheba's hometown. Have no idea why he ran here, but he did. And Joab followed him. Look at verse 15. It says, And all the troops with Joab came and besieged this city, and they built a siege ramp up to the city, and it stood against the outer fortifications, and and they began battering down the wall of this city to get in and get at this guy. Now, the Bible says that they built a siege ramp. And, and this was a very common military tactic in the ancient Near East, and I'll tell you why. Because cities in the ancient Near East were built on hills normally for protection. 
And the only way you could get up to the city wall to batter it down or go over it is you needed to build this huge mound of dirt that got you up the hill and close to the wall. There's a great example of this today, even today, in Israel at Masada. I want to show you a couple of slides here. Masada is down in the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea, and it's a completely enclosed mountain. It's not connected to any other mountain around it. And Herod the Great, the king of Israel at the time of Jesus, built the top of this flat-top mountain into a fortress, a personal fortress, where he could flee to in case he ever needed to get out of town quick. Well, Herod never used it. But when the Jews revolted against the Romans in 70 A.D. and the city was completely destroyed, the temple was burnt down in Jerusalem, the last 960 of those Jewish revolutionaries fled here. They went up on top of Masada and they lived up here and they figured the Romans wouldn't come get them. But the Romans did try to come get them. Now you say, well, how does anybody, how in the world do you ever get up something like this? Well, let me show you. This is how you get up it today. You use a cable car, but obviously Roman General Silva didn't have a cable car. So let me show you how he got up it. He got up it using a siege mound. There, is, there it is. I'm pointing it out to you, this white portion here. It looks like a little triangle that they threw up against the side of Masada, 1,300 feet high, friends. And it took them two and a half years to build that siege mound. And that's how they got up and eventually breached the wall and got in. And um, let me just show you, while they were doing that, the Jews on top were rolling these big old rocks down on them, just rolling them down the hill. They're kind of like bowling for Romans, if you understand what I mean. <laughs> Say, well, Lon, how in the world did they ever get the thing built? Well, it took them two and a half years. And if you want to know the whole story, you just have to come to Israel with me sometime and I'll tell you the whole story. Don't have time today. But anyway, you get the idea what Joab did, right? He built one of these big old siege mounds up against the city. Now, um, this wise woman, verse 16, suddenly shows up. It says, a wise woman called from the city and said, I want a meeting with Joab. She got her meeting and she says to him, look down in verse 19, we are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. I mean, we're the good guys. You're trying to destroy a city that's a mother in Israel. She asked a very wise question. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Why are you here doing this to us? And he goes on to say, far be it from me to swallow up and destroy. This is not the case. A man named Sheba from the hill country of Ephraim has lifted up his hand against David. Hand over the man and we'll go away from the city. He says, woman, I don't have a beef with you. I don't have a beef with your city. The problem is you're hiding out a rebel in there. Give me him. We're out of here. We'll leave the city alone. The woman says, that's it. We can solve the whole problem like that. She says at the end of verse 21, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Just give me a second, Joab. We'll take care of this. No. And so she went in, verse 22, and the woman went to all the people with her wise advice. She said, hey, you, you know, yeah, let me tell you why this army's here. This guy Sheba's come here. We don't know this guy from Adam, man. He, he rebels against King David, comes into our city, endangers our lives, endangers our children. What we need to do is we need to cut his head off and just chuck it over the wall. What do you all think? And everybody said, hey, sounds like a great idea to me. Chopped his head off, and that's what they did. Just lobbed it over the city wall down to Joab. Of course, Joab picked it up, looked at him, said, yep, that's him. And off they, they, they left. 
The whole army. Look at the end of the verse. It says, So Joab sounded the trumpet. His men dispersed from the city, each returning to their home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. One woman, acting in a wise way, the Bible says, saved the life of not only herself, but saved the life of the entire city. That's what you call wisdom, bringing wisdom to bear on a situation. Now, when I read this passage, I'm left with a question. You know the question I'm left with. What is the question? That's right. So what? What difference does this make to our lives today? Well, I think it makes a lot of difference, friends, because I believe God wants us to be people of wisdom. He wants us to be people who look at the situations and the circumstances around us, and He wants us to be people who bring wisdom as followers of Christ, wisdom to bear. You know, many of you have seen the movie Aladdin, right? You know the story. The guy rubs the lamp, uh, out pops Robin Williams, whatever you want. You understand the story. Well, uh, wouldn't it be, I mean, that's a fantasy, but wouldn't it be unbelievable if God actually appeared to you and said, all right, you can have any one thing you want in the whole world. It's not a joke. This is absolutely serious. I own the universe. What do you want? You want money. You want fame. You want power. You want a new house. You want a red sports car. What do you want? Okay, and whatever it is, I'll give it to you. Now, can you imagine a deal like that? What would you wish for? And what would you wish for? Well, let me tell I don't don't tell, call out the answers. It's a, this is a rhetorical question. Uh, <laughs> but... But, but let me show you a guy who honestly got that chance. Flip over with me. Second Chronicles chapter 1. Now you'll go through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, then you'll go through 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles is next. So it's four books back. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, if you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 308. Page 308. And here we're going to look at King Solomon, David's son, who actually got an offer like this from God. Listen to this. Second Chronicles chapter 1, look at verse 7. And that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want, Solomon, and, and, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon answered God and said, You have shown great mercy to David my father, and now you've made me king in his place. Verse 10. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people for who is able to govern this great people of yours. And God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire and you've not asked for wealth or riches or honor or the death of your enemies, you've not asked for long life for yourself, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I've made you king. Therefore, God says, wisdom and knowledge I'm going to give you. And I'm also going to give you everything you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you wealth, give you riches, give you honor, such as no king that was ever before you. I don't know about you. I think Solomon gave a home run answer. What do you think? A home run answer. And God loved it. And God said, that's exactly right, Solomon. Bingo, man. You, you got the right answer. And, and, and that's what God tells us today. That if we were to ask for anything in this world, what He would love for us to ask for is not money or wealth or long life or power, but to ask for wisdom. He says, Proverbs chapter 8, Wisdom is supreme. It's more precious than rubies. Therefore, get wisdom. It will lead you along straight paths. It will exalt you. It will honor you. And it will cause the years of your life to be many. God says, go get wisdom. Now, what is wisdom, friends? Wisdom, the dictionary defines it, 
as the ability to take knowledge and turn it into good judgment, or as making good choices for your life in a keen and practical way. See, a person can have a lot of academic knowledge and not be wise, because wisdom is not just about knowledge. Wisdom is about using knowledge to make good, godly, healthy choices for our lives. And in the Bible, friends, God has tons to say about wisdom. Hundreds of times. Check it out in a concordance. Hundreds of times. He mentions wisdom and being wise. And so what I did is I went through the Bible looking up all those references and I tried to boil it down to some things that wise people do. Some ways that wise people live. And I hope you'll write these down. I've got eight to give you. And yes, we will make it. Okay, ready? Number one. One example, what do, what do wise people do? Number one, wise people, first of all, believe that there's a God. Psalm 14, verse 1, only fools say in their heart, there is no God. And I just talked about this on Thanksgiving weekend a couple weekends ago, how that by looking at the precision in our natural world and by looking at the complexity of biological life in this world, that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that there is a creator, designer, sustainer God who is running this whole show. You know, one of my favorite movies is Rudy. You know the story of the guy who wants to make the Notre Dame football team? You've seen that? I love this movie. I cry every time I see this movie. And my kids think I'm nuts. They're like, Dad, you know the movie by heart. You can quote the lines of what the people are going to say in the movie. How can you cry? You know the ending. I mean, you know the whole movie. Well, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's just one of those great movies, you know, up there with Top Gun and Rambo. You know, one of those great movies. So, but there's a great scene in this movie where this elderly Catholic priest is talking to Rudy. And he says, son, he said, in all my years of theological study, I have learned two incontestable truths. Number one, there is a God. And number two, I am not he. Now, that's a smart man. That's a smart man. He figured out there is a God and it's not him. And friends, that's what smart people figure out. That's what wise people know when they start with an acknowledgement that there's a God in the universe and it's not us. We are not the God of our lives and we are not the God of anybody else's life. And oh, by the way, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this is where all wisdom starts. With this acknowledgement that you are not God, there is a God, but it's not you. And, and wise people, when they figure that out, decide that they have to find out what it takes to be in right standing with that God, to be in right relationship with that God. This is just a smart thing. Friends, what you do to be in right relationship with God, the very first thing you do is you embrace Jesus Christ and what He did for you on the cross. That's where it all starts. So if you're here and you've never done that, we want to try to help you become a smart person. This is what smart people do. They recognize there's a God, it's not them, and they take steps to make sure they're in right relationship with that God. I hope you'll do that. Number two, let me tell you what wise people do. Number two, wise people fear God. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They say, well, Lon, what's the difference between believing in God and fearing God? Very simple. Believing in God means acknowledging God in your head. Fearing God means surrendering to God in your heart. 
Fearing God means actively placing yourself under the authority, the lordship, and the command of Jesus Christ. It means adopting the same motto for our lives that Jesus had for His life, and His motto was what? God, not my will, but yours be done. This is living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jimmy Draper, the past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, had the best definition of the lordship of Christ I've ever heard. He said the lordship of Christ means that we say, Lord, the answer is yes. Now, what was the question? Was the question, will you go here? Yes. Well, the question is, will you live like that? Yes. Is the question, will you do this? Yes. Is the question whether or not you'll agree to run your business life, your sex life, your family commitment the, the way I tell you? Yes. Is the question whether or not you'll agree to use the language I tell you, watch the movies that I warn you about watching and not watching, watch out for the magazines you read? Yes. The answer, God, is yes. Just fill in the question. That's lordship. And I'll tell you why wise people live that way. Because they understand God designed us. They understand that God knows how we work better than we know how we work. They understand that when God tells us something, it's because He knows that's how we operate best. That God is not a cosmic killjoy trying to take all the fun out of the world. God wants us to live healthy, wholesome, successful lives. And that's why He tells us what He tells us in the Bible. And smart people say, I understand that, and God, I'll do it your way, because that's how you live a healthy, successful life. Number three, wise people embrace a lifestyle of humility. Proverbs 15, verse 33, the fear of the Lord teaches a person wisdom, the Bible says, and here's some of that wisdom, before honor comes humility. Now, what is humility? Humility means recognizing every moment of every day that all of our blessings, our successes, our talents, our achievements, our accomplishments, our prosperity, any position or influence we have, that it is all an undeserved gift from God. It is not something we brought ourselves. It is an undeserved gift from God. Humility does not mean walking around and going, I'm a worm, I'm awful, I'm terrible, somebody step on me and crush me. That is not humility. That is mental illness. That is not humility. True. All humility means is a willingness to recognize it's all from God. And you know, that's what, that's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have, Paul says, that you didn't receive? Well, if you didn't receive it, he goes on to say, why do you walk around acting arrogantly like you didn't receive it? I mean, this is the attitude that God wants because as Jesus said, God exalts the humble, but he puts the proud down. And wise people get on the right side of that equation. Number four, wise people set godly boundaries. Proverbs 14, verse 16. A wise person fears the Lord and shuns, stays far away from evil. Wise people don't go right up to the edge. Wise people don't go right up to the precipice and walk right on the edge of that. So the slightest little mistake and over they go. No, wise people, they leave distance. They leave boundaries. They stay back from the edge. You know, my wife and I, my wife Brenda and I, we drive very differently. It's true. I'll tell you how I drive. I tend to cruise right up on behind people. And then I figure, hey, if they stop suddenly, I've always got the shoulder. Well, that's what shoulders on the road are for, as far as I'm concerned. But that's not how my wife drives. Uh Uh-uh. My wife, it is DMV safe following distance at all times with all vehicles. And what God is telling us in the Bible, friends, 
is that wise people live the way Brenda drives, leaving safe distances around them from every kind of potential problem, every kind of potential temptation and wrongdoing. They set good, safe boundaries, and then they respect them. Number five, wise people watch what comes out of their mouths. Proverbs 10, verse 19. He who holds his tongue is wise, the Bible says. And I love Proverbs 17, verse 28. It says this. It says, even a fool, when he holds his tongue, when he shuts his mouth, is thought to be wise. God says, hey, you may be stupid, but if you be quiet, nobody will ever know. And they'll think you're smart. Don't open your mouth and confirm that you're stupid. Just be quiet. Well, there's a lot of wisdom in that, friends. Wise people learn to pray the prayer of David. Psalm 141. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, David prays. Keep watch over the door of my lips so that what comes out of there, I don't end up being sorry for. And as I tell my children all the time, hey, there is nothing I can think of in my life that I ever didn't say that I'm sorry for. But man, there are a whole bunch of things I did say I wish I could take back. Watch what comes out of your mouth. Number six, wise people are teachable. Proverbs 19, verse 20, listen to advice and accept instruction. And in the end, you will be wise. Proverbs 15, verse 5, a person who listens to advice, God says, is wise. Now, friends, this doesn't mean you've got to do what everybody tells you. It doesn't mean that just because somebody gives you advice, you've got to do what their advice is. It simply means that wise people slow down long enough to even take it in. They slow down long enough to even listen and pray about it and think about it and mull it over and filter it. And maybe 95% of it they filter out as being worthless. But maybe 5% of it was good. Wise people stop long enough to do this. Fools don't listen. They just, they're sure they got all the answers and they just go out there and do whatever they feel like doing. When I was in high school, I had this chemistry teacher. Her name was Mrs. Hinton. Mrs. Hinton made a huge good impact on my life, but she had a favorite saying. Here was her favorite saying. She used to always say, a word to the wise is sufficient. A fool needs to be wrapped on the head. And she used to always say that to me, for I could never figure out why. So I would say, Lon, where do I do? And go through that whole little mantra with me over and over and over again. Well, I know why now she said it to me. It's because I was a fool. Nobody could tell me anything in high school. I had all the answers. And all Mrs. Hinton was doing was agreeing with God. God says, Proverbs 17, verse 10, a rebuke, uh, some advice, some correction goes deeper into a wise person than a hundred lashes into a fool. You can take a fool time up to a pole, beat him a hundred times, but you'll get farther by giving a wise person one piece of advice. Be a wise person. Listen to advice. Number eight. Forgive me, number seven, wise people exercise self-control. Proverbs 29, verse 11, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person keeps himself under control. Wise people don't do knee-jerk stuff. Wise people don't let their passions decide the choices they're going to make in their life. Wise people take the time to pray and think before they act, to pray and think before they speak, to pray and think before they react. They have self-control. They don't do knee-jerk stuff. And number eight, wise people invest their lives for eternal purposes. 
Proverbs 11, verse 30, the person who wins souls, the Bible says, is wise. Friends, wise people don't waste their lives just trying to pile up junk. Now, there, in our world, there is cheap junk and there is expensive junk. A Porsche is expensive junk, but it's still junk. And the reason I say that is because it can't go with you on the other side of the grave. You can't take it with you to the other side. Uh, you know, all you can take with you, all I can take with me, are the lives that we have impacted for Jesus Christ while we were here on earth. The difference that we made in people's lives for eternity. That's the only thing that goes with us, folks. Everything else is just junk. Expensive or not, it stays here. And God says, that's why people who win souls are wise, because they have enough sense not to spend their lives on junk. They spend their lives making an impact on other people for eternity in the name of Jesus Christ. That's a wise person. Now you say, well, Lon, <clears throat> this is a lot. I mean, this is a lot wise people do. How in the world do you remember all this stuff out there? How in the world do you stay focused on all this stuff? How do you keep equilibrium so that in a world that's jostling you, you don't get, you know, you don't lose sight of all of this? How do you keep that focus? Well, that leads me to the last and final point, and that is that wise people build their lives around the Word of God. Listen to how David says people get wisdom. Psalm 19, verse 7. He said, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Look at this. Making wise the simple. And I love what David says in Psalm 119. Listen. He says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands, listen, have made me wiser than all my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers because I meditate on on your word, I even have more understanding than the elders of the people because I saturate my life with your precepts. Friends, nobody is just born wise. And you don't get wise just because you get older. That's not true. Wisdom comes from doing what David did. David loved God's Word. He saturated his life with God's Word. He meditated on God's Word. He sought to obey God's Word. And it's that regular time in the Word of God that is the secret to maintaining our focus, the secret to maintaining equilibrium in our world so that we don't lose sight of what a wise person does. It's pretty much a direct correlation. Little time in the Word of God, little wisdom. Much time in the Word of God, much wisdom. It's pretty much that simple. And this is why we are constantly challenging you here to be people of the Word, to be in the book, to be saturating your lives with the book. Why? Not because we get commission from Bible sales. That has nothing to do with it. We don't. We're challenging you to get in the book because, friends, we, want, we don't want you to go out there and run your life in the ditch. We don't want you to go out there and step on a landmine. We don't want you to go out there and have an alligator take the lower half of your leg off. And the way not to do that is you've got to have wisdom. You've got to have supernatural, godly wisdom to navigate the shoals of Washington, D.C. This is shark-infested water here, folks. And to do that, where do you get that wisdom? Well, you're not going to get it from reading Time magazine. You may get some knowledge from time, but you won't get wisdom. You're not going to get wisdom from listening to the nightly news on television. You're not going to get wisdom from, God forbid, reading the Washington Post. No, no, no. You're not getting wisdom there. This is the only place in the world to get wisdom. The B-I-B-L-E, friends. 
That's where the wisdom of God is found. And that's why we try to encourage you and motivate you in every way we can think of to get into the Word of God. Listen, if you don't have a regular time in the Word of God, we're about to start a new year. What a fabulous commitment to make for a new year. To spend a little less time watching television and a little less time reading the sports section and the paper and a little less time in Time Magazine and some more time in the Word of God. It'll make you wiser and it'll help you stay off the landmines, I'm telling you. What do wise people do? Well, number one, they believe in God. Number two, they live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Number three, they live with an attitude of humility, recognizing everything they have is from God. Number four, they set godly boundaries. Number five, they watch what comes out of their mouth. Number six, they listen to advice and to counsel and pray over it. Number seven, they exercise self-control. Number eight, they invest their lives for eternal purposes And number nine, they build their lives on the Word of God. And friend, when we do number nine, it helps us stay on course with number one through eight. So I hope you walk out of here today saying, not only do I know what the target is I'm trying to hit in terms of being a wise person, but now I even know the mechanism to get me there. It's saturating my life with the Word of God. And I hope it'll change the way you live every single day. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know we live in a community where there's just not a whole lot of wisdom. There's a lot of power and a lot of money and a lot of affluence. Not a lot of wisdom. And the messages that we have being thrown at us in this city all the time are messages that disagree with just about everything you said about what wisdom, about what it looks like. And so, God, my prayer is that you would take people here who are followers of Jesus Christ... And that you would so immerse us in the Word of God. That you would so drive us to be people of the Word. That we would be able to keep our focus in a world that is constantly trying to knock us off track. Lord, change the way we live. Change the way we spend our time. Change our very value system. Because we were here today. And now I pray that you would dismiss your people, Lord, with the blessing, the great blessing you gave Aaron for the people of Israel. May the Lord bless you. May He keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. May He be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and not His back. And in the middle of this hectic season of Christmas, God, may You give us peace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Messiah. Amen.